Well, good morning and welcome to The Gathering Church. My name is Robbie Denson. I am one of the pastors here at The Gathering, and I am so grateful and honored to have a chance to hang out with you today. I, uh, my job uh, allows me to be here on Sunday, but I'm just doing a lot of different things, and I'm managing teams and people and, uh, and just kind of being where, where that is. And so when I get to speak, I kind of feel like I get to hang out a little bit, and so I'm really grateful to be up here this morning. Uh, We are in the week three of a series called Switchbacks. And my family, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. My wife grew up there as well. Uh, Two of our children were born there. And so that's what I know, right? So I grew up at sea level or below sea level. And so, so what I did growing up, like I didn't, I, I had to learn what switchbacks were when I moved here. Uh, I grew up going surfing and then I was just trying to find a friend whose parents had a boat so I could go on it. Right. And so that's my life. I grew up, my, my buddy, I remember being in high school and we had four periods in high school and uh, right in the middle of third period, I had a buddy of mine who would text me just every single week, Robbie, let's go surfing. And I'd be like, I'm in school, and hey, Justin, you're in school too, you know? <laughs> and he said, I know, but let's leave at 1.30 at fourth period to go surfing. I'm like, Justin, that's when math class starts for me and history starts for you. And he's like, yeah, but you don't know what they're talking about in math, and I don't care what they're talking about in history. Let's go surfing. And then I thought to myself, he's right, <laughs> you know? There we were. And luckily for me, you guys remember you had a school resource officer and that was the cop who would like manage students and he would stand outside uh, where you have to leave. It was one way in and one way out. And I remember just being there every week, whether I was skipping for lunch or, and uh, he would just send cars around. And for some reason, all the other students couldn't figure out why he let my car go. He was my neighbor. Now that I think about it, I'm glad my parents never asked him about it. So that was my, I didn't know what switchbacks were. We moved up here in the uh, April of 2015 with with my wife and at the time two of our children. And we just wanted to become mountain people, or should I say Asheville people. And so we just started to do everything we could to become Asheville people people. We wanted to indoctrinate ourselves in the culture. And so I remember when we made the decision to move to Asheville, the first thing we did was go out and blow $200 on two pairs of Chacos. (laughs) Because in our hearts, we were like, we want to be one of these people. And what you don't know about me, and you may never discover, is that basically from here down to my toes, I'm translucent. And you can see the blood running through my veins. And so I wore those for about two weeks, and that was that. I think I still have them somewhere at the house. And, and so eventually we, we moved into our West Asheville bungalow and started to explore the mountains, got out on the Blue Ridge and started to hit the trails a little bit. And it was then that we learned what switchbacks are. A switchback is when a mountain is too steep to hike directly up. So what they do is they cut a trail and a zigzag going up the mountain. And so here's what switchbacks do. Switchbacks make it feel like gaining 2,000 feet of elevation is impossible because the journey never seems to end. But in reality, the only reason you can make it to the top is because of those switchbacks. They're your only shot at getting to the top. And so oftentimes, switchbacks can feel like setbacks. 
And so in this series, we're taking a look at the lives of four people in the Bible who had to travel their own switchbacks. We're studying their journey to see what we can learn about ours. And today I want to talk about Paul. Paul's story is unique. And his, his, it's unique. Paul's story ends with him being one of the most influential people in history. His influence would go on to change the world, but Paul's story did not start as well as it ends. He's unique because his story starts with a different name. You see, Paul is introduced in Scripture as an influential religious leader by the name of Saul. And so this morning, I'd like to look at what we can learn from the, from the life of Saul. And then I'd like to take just a moment to learn what we can discover about the life of Paul. Saul is first introduced to us in Scripture in Acts chapter 7. Let me give you a little bit of context. In Acts chapter 7, we're hearing from a young preacher by the name of Stephen. We don't really know a lot about Stephen in his journey, but we do learn a good bit in just a short period of time. Stephen is a passionate follower of Jesus. And not only did his sermons speak to his love for Jesus, but Scripture tells us that his life was a reflection of his love for Jesus. And at this time, the religious leaders were trying to minimize the movement of Jesus, and Stephen was trying to maximize the movement of Jesus. And as the Pharisees and Sadducees were watching this guy Stephen preach and live his life, they saw that Jesus was rising to the surface, that the movement of, of Jesus, they called it the way, was starting to rise to the surface, and they were losing their influence. And so they wanted to squash it from the start. And so what they did is they, they set Stephen up and they brought him to trial for blasphemy. And Stephen, at his trial, is given a chance to speak. And he doesn't hold anything back. He calls the religious leaders out on their hypocrisy. He reminds them that it was their jealousy and it was your rage that killed Jesus. He calls them snakes and vipers. And the men listening to this, unfortunately for Stephen, have influence and they have power and they have authority. And they don't take liking to what Stephen is saying, and they use their influence and their authority. I want to pick up in verse 54. It says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out to the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Here we have Saul commissioning the murder of a follower of Jesus. And so here's the first thing we can learn from the life of Saul. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing we learn from the life of Saul is that Saul was pursued by God. Saul was pursued by God. He had grown up in an environment that trained him to hate anyone who didn't think or act like him. 
Paul's father was a Roman citizen, which gave him prominence amongst the people. They had influence, they had wealth, and at the age of roughly 14, Paul was sent to go study under some great religious leaders, some, some philosophers and some theologians. And what we can see now is that God, at a young age, was laying the groundwork that would someday allow Saul to lay down his past and pick up what would be his future. But like many of us, Saul was hard of hearing. God was pursuing Saul, but Saul couldn't hear it. He couldn't see it. He couldn't believe it. And here we have his introduction into Scripture, overseeing the murder of Stephen. And there's a lot to learn and to pull away from this story. And there's many sermons about it. And there's so much to take away. Read it. You'll get what, you, you'll get what God wants to kind of help you discover. But what I want to see most clearly this morning is that Saul was pursued by God. I want to draw your attention back to the moments just before the execution of Stephen would take place. In these moments, Stephen, and just take yourself there, Stephen, because he's operating out of conviction, and I would say purpose, preaching the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. In this moment, he's surrounded by men who are enraged. Men who know the same scriptures he knows. They know the Bible, but they lack any of the grace and love, and I would say truth, found in it. And he's surrounded by these men who are angry, and they begin to stone him out of their anger, to punish him. And while he's being stoned by these men who surround him in rage, the crowd begins to come around. And in this moment, the crowd can make one of two decisions. No, we should not be doing this to Stephen. He preaches the good news of the gospel. No, what he's telling us is true. There's power in the crowd. But what the crowd does is they take their jackets off and they lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And what they're doing as they lay their jackets at the, the feet of a young man named Saul is what they're doing is saying, we approve of what's about to happen. Do you? Do you approve? And without hesitation, Saul gives them the nod of approval to continue the stoning. And he allows people to watch. And so the stoning begins and it continues. And Stephen says something that I only ever see one other time in Scripture. With rocks being hurled at him, and Stephen says these few but powerful words. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, don't, don't count this one. They're confused. They don't, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. You know, there's only one other time I see this in Scripture where I hear this sentiment being expressed to someone's murderers. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is being crucified for what the Jews believed was blasphemy. And while hanging on the cross in front of the very people who falsely accused him and those who were currently killing him, Jesus said these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, in this moment, Jesus is laying the groundwork for the very people who are killing Jesus, killing him to someday turn and receive his forgiveness. Jesus wants them to hear it. 
Because in the moment they are killing him, he wants to, someday he's going to present himself again. And he wants them to remember, it, when I was killing you, you forgave me. In the midst of me killing you, you forgave me. In the same words we see used to pursue those killing Jesus, we see being used by Stephen to show Saul that God is ready for him to turn towards him. God was in pursuit of Saul in the very moment he was killing Stephen. God was in pursuit of Saul in the middle of Saul's sin. You know, some of us, we've done things in our lives that have set us back. Some of us have, have made mistakes that have gripped our lives so tightly that we don't think there's a way to bounce back, that we don't see a way forward. We're caught up in the guilt and the shame of it all, and there's no way to move forward. Can I tell you something this morning? God was pursuing you in the middle of your mistake. God is pursuing you in the middle of your mess. Saul wasn't ready to hear what God was telling him. But can you hear it this morning? Or better yet, can you believe it? Saul had ears. He could hear. But he wasn't listening. Can you hear it? And can you believe it this morning? Let's see what else we can learn from the life of Saul. The second thing is this. You cannot determine the legacy you receive, but you can determine the legacy you leave. You cannot determine the legacy you receive, but you can determine the legacy you leave. You know, you and I, we were born into the families we were born into. I had to find a friend with a boat because my family was never getting a boat, right? We can't do anything about that. We've grown up in the neighborhoods our families resided in. Saul grew up to be a product of his environment. He was taught to hate those who loved Jesus. He was inundated with wrong thinking. He received a legacy of hate. He didn't have any control over that. You know, I don't think Saul, as a toddler, was thinking, man, I can't wait to start killing people someday, right? I don't think Saul, as, a, as an elementary student, was trying to learn the best tactics to imprisonate people because that's where he saw his future going. I don't think those of us grew up thinking, I can't wait to make the mistakes that I'm going to make someday. But we don't determine the legacy we receive. I have, I have permission. I want to I lay this out in a way. I want to paint a picture that you can see clearly. And I have some permission to share a little bit of my wife's story with you this morning. My wife is uh, one of my heroes. And she has fought with all her strength uh, to put down the legacy that she received so that her life could leave something different to those who follow behind her. And you know, when I wrote this, I was just thinking about our kids, that my wife has fought to leave a legacy for our kids. But I just got to be honest with you, and I, I don't, I, I'm bragging on my wife here, but I, I know for a fact there are many women in this building who don't even realize it, but she's been fighting uh, to, to kill the legacy she received so you, she could leave a legacy for you. And she wants, to leave, she wants to, to live a life different than the one that was given to, given to her. And so I have permission to share just a brief part of her story. You know, it, it, it wasn't my wife's fault that she grew up in a family of divorce multiple times over on both sides. You know, it was not up to my wife that she would have two and three stepdads as a child and then two and three stepmoms 
as a child. And it wasn't my wife's fault that she stepped into our relationship with a misunderstanding of what marriage even looks like. And so with that, it wasn't her fault that for the first five years of our marriage, she thought the whole thing could fall apart at the drop of a dime. We've been married 11 years almost now, and I remember about five years in, I began to feel as though there was a distance growing between us, and I couldn't figure out if it was me, and I couldn't figure out if it was her, or if it was us, or if it was the tension of we had already planned and decided to move to Asheville. We had moved in with my family, and we we're raising and saving money, and it's like, what, is this, is this the enemy? And we started to ask questions, and the more questions I asked, the more I felt like what she was saying back to me is, Robbie, I'm sorry if I'm too much for you. Robbie, I'm sorry if I'm too much of a burden for you, and I'm sitting here thinking, why are you saying this? What have I done to communicate to you that you're too much? And, and I had to realize that she had been given a legacy. She had never seen what a healthy marriage looked like. My, she had a conviction in her heart that I was going to leave her someday. And I felt as though I had not given her a reason to feel this way. I hadn't communicated anything, but nevertheless, she felt the way she... Do you know when somebody feels the way they feel... There's not much you can do about it. But you can try to understand it. Do you know what empathy is? Empathy is setting down how you feel and think long enough to understand how someone else feels and thinks. And so after hitting my head against the wall and us fighting, I, I had to take the next step and say, no, no, no. Get over yourself. Why is she feeling the way she feels? I need to understand this. And it took many conversations and, and months of counseling for me to realize that at, that at that point, my wife didn't know what a marriage that lasted looked like. She was in unfamiliar territory, and the only thing she knew was that, she, that, that what she saw growing up is what life looked like. She felt that because of the family she grew up in, she was destined to continue in that legacy. It wasn't her fault. That was the legacy she had received. But here's one of the things I love about my wife. She's a fighter. She's a fighter, and she's fearless. You wouldn't know it because she's so sweet, and she's so bubbly, and she just has the, a beautiful smile that radiates, and you walk into our home. It's just like, man, this girl's got it all going on, and she's got, but that girl knows how to fight, and it's one thing to know how to fight. It's another thing to know how to win. Chelsea knows how to win. The last six years of our marriage, we have partnered together to kill the legacy she received and bring to life a new legacy that we can leave for our children and those who follow behind us. God has shown up in more ways than we can count. He's done more than we could ever have prayed for. God can heal the wounds of our past. I remember 12 years ago, when we got engaged, Chelsea telling me, my mom's probably not gonna be involved and the wedding, because our relationship is, there's so much friction. And I go, yeah, I've been dating you for like two years. I know what it's like. You don't have to tell me now. And over the course of 11 years, I have seen healing and restoration. Her and her mom, they've talked about their past. They've cried together about the past. But most importantly, they've healed and found freedom from the past. And today, it doesn't matter if we're on a date, if we're at breakfast with the family. When her mom calls, she's answering it because that's her best friend because they've walked through the fire together. 
You do not determine the legacy you receive, but you can determine the legacy you leave. Saul had the opportunity to put down the legacy he received and pick up something entirely new. In Acts chapter 7, Saul, we see being introduced overseeing the murder of Stephen. And what many scholars believe is less than a year later in Acts chapter 9, God begins another pursuit of Saul's heart. At this point in Saul's life, he's known for killing Christians. He's earned a reputation for his convictions. Saul was carrying on the legacy that had been taught to him. And in Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul was still breathing out the murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Paul's anger and his vitriol and his hate was at an all-time high. And with that anger, Saul goes to get permission from the high priest to head to Damascus and take prisoner anyone who was following Jesus. I want to pick up in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And I love what God does here. God goes ahead of Saul into Damascus, and he's looking for someone to prepare the way for Saul. So he finds a man by the name of Ananias and he says, hey, I want you to be on the lookout for Saul. When Saul gets here, I want you to find him. I want you to bring him home. And Ananias is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know who Saul is. Saul's coming here to put me in prison. I'm not okay with this. Listen to how God responds to Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, can you just picture yourself being Ananias having to hear this? Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. If I was, you know what I would say if I was Ananias? Couldn't you choose me? I already believe. No, 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 no. Go. This is the man I have chosen. This is the man that I have chosen to stand before kings before the people of Israel and bring Jesus to them. Hey, God, you do know that he doesn't like Jesus. Ananias didn't say that, but I just can't help but see myself there. You see, God had a purpose for Saul's life, and he was going to do whatever he had to do to get into Saul's heart and give Saul a chance to change his legacy. Did you know that God is willing to do whatever he has to do to get in front of you? Did you know that God's already done everything he had to do to get in front of you, to get in your heart and give you a chance to change your legacy? And that leads to the third thing we can learn from the life of Saul. The third thing is this. You and I can be one decision away from changing our lives. One decision away from changing your life. Today can be the day that you stop running from God. Saul is on the road to Damascus. And with him, he was carrying what he believed to be his purpose. He was going to rid that city of Christ followers. But hear me when I say this. We should not confuse activity with purpose. Saul was very busy pursuing what he believed something of significance. Saul had built a name for himself. In his industry, he was successful. 
But Saul was not building for himself a life of significance. God believed something different about Saul. God believed this would be the man who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He just had to get Saul to believe it. In verse 17, we see the encounter that Ananias has with Saul. It says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. From that moment, I believe in that word immediately, scale. That word, something happened that immediately when Ananias presented the Holy Spirit to Saul and then something, the scales fell immediately. Saul in his heart gave up control. And from that moment, Saul made a decision that changed his life and with that changed his legacy forever. It was one decision. You see, what we see in the life of Saul is this, that Saul was pursued by God. God made a way for him to change his legacy, and Saul took him up on the offer. Jesus' encounter with Saul would change his life forever. He developed immediately a hunger. You know, he already knew all the things he needed to know about Jesus. He had grown up. God had prepared him for this moment. He learned from the best theologians. The best history. God had prepared. God was ready for Saul to make a change. He had prepared the change in him. He developed a hunger for Jesus that was actually hard for Christians to believe. In fact, they thought that Saul had just gone undercover and they made a plan to kill Saul. But Saul would continue to preach. Did you know that sometimes changing your life is hard? Those around you don't, don't, can't see it yet. But Saul persevered. He kept moving forward. He kept doing the right things, making the right decisions. He would continue to preach the gospel of Jesus. And slowly, he would change the minds of those who doubted him. And eventually, he would change the minds of those who doubted Jesus. And in Acts 13, we see that Saul is now called Paul. And we don't know exactly the reasons why there were thoughts and ideas out there. But what we do know is this. The legacy that Saul received was laid to rest. The legacy of hate was laid to rest. And so Saul, who is now called Paul, would fight the rest of his life to leave a legacy of significance. Paul was no longer operating out of activity. Paul was operating in his purpose. Paul would go on to write a majority of the New Testament. He would plant churches that would take Christianity across the Roman Empire. And with the influence of the Roman Empire, we have to believe that his influence would continue throughout the whole world. And sometimes you and I can get so caught up in the rat race that we confuse, right, our activity with purpose and think we're making a difference. Saul was caught up in the rat race. A busy life does not necessarily equal a well-lived life. What if for just a moment we were to just ask ourselves, what long-term impact am I making on the lives of others? Paul can now answer that question. The fourth thing that we can learn from the life of Saul and the first thing that we can learn from the life of Paul is this. Until you let God love the Saul inside of you, you will never discover the Paul inside of you. 
Until you let God love the Saul inside of you, you will never discover the Paul inside of you. On the road to Damascus, Saul had yet another encounter with God. And this time, he allowed him in. God has a purpose for your life. And while those of us may be staring and stagnated by what's in our past, God is saying, and he has said, I forgive you. You didn't know what you were doing. I'm here now. You know, something I've had to come to grips with time and time again in my life is that I have to allow God to love the worst version of me. Because it's the worst version of me that keeps me from seeing myself the way that God sees me. And just like Stephen saying, they don't know what this, don't put this one on them, God. They don't know what they're doing as he communicates this to Saul and those who are killing him. I have to remind myself that God loves the worst version of me. And when we allow God to love the worst versions of ourselves, we open the door of possibility to our future. We have a saying in my house, drop the rope. When I grew up, my parents always used to say, you know, because I said so. You know what I'm talking about. I'd be fighting and I just was like a lawyer, man. I just knew that I was right and I had evidence. I presented it to the court. And then finally they would say, well, you know why you're going to bed? Because I said so. And I said, I'll never say that to my kids. And so what I've done is created a more nuanced way to say because I said so. We have this saying, and, and oftentimes we'll be talking to our 14-year-old, or even, even now there are seven and eight-year-olds who are just learning how to beat us in arguments. <clears throat> we'll tell them, hey, at this point, it's time to drop the rope. We're, 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 we're playing tug of war. I, I'm making this decision because I know things you don't know, and I want to protect you. I know you don't see it that way, but I love you, and I care for you. Drop the rope. Drop the rope. Let go of control. That day on the road to Damascus, Saul decided to drop the rope. He stopped fighting to defend the mistakes of his past and he allowed God into his life. You know, in my experience with people and in ministry and myself, I've learned that some of us are fighting to defend the mistakes of our past. And here's why. Because you just don't know how good Jesus is. You don't have to defend your past because in the midst of what your mess was back there, Jesus was pursuing you. Jesus was pursuing you. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans. And, and Paul is the only person in scripture who could have written this and it had any meaning or significance. The same man who had spent so much of his life tormenting and killing Christians wrote this in Romans chapter five, verse eight. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. You want to know if God loves you? Well, I have proof. One, go look at my life, but listen to this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God sees potential in us when we can't see anything in ourselves. Until you let God love the Saul inside you, you will never discover the Paul inside of you. There is a Paul inside you. There is a future inside you. There is healing available to you. There is forgiveness and love and redemption available to you. There is freedom available to you.
And you've got to fight to find freedom, but it starts with receiving the forgiveness that Jesus gives to you while you were still a sinner. You know, I was, years ago, I was preaching a message, and I don't even remember what it was about, but I was talking about the love of God and how, how big it is and how all-encompassing it is. And I'm sure I used this verse talking about this idea that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. And in between services, I had an adult who you could lived a life, you know, and he came up to me and he said, you know, I hear what you're saying and I want to believe you, but I got secrets I can't tell you. And I got things in my life that, that I can't tell you. Um, because I, I, I can't talk about those things anymore. And I hear you and I believe that what you're saying is true for everyone else in this room, but I can't believe it for me. The life I lived was too rough. The life I lived was too dirty. It was too filthy. You don't understand, Robbie. Jesus's grace is good, but it's not good enough for me. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? He said, no, no, I believe it. I believe what scripture says. I, I believe what you're saying, but I can't believe it for me. And I said, all right, let's do something weird. Because I'm not like that weird of a person. I'm not looking to, you know, always make things all weird and over-spiritualized. But I just, I said, let's do something. Let's do something. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to, I want you to take yourself back. And with your eyes closed, I want you to take yourself back to the foot of the cross. And I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to see what he's doing. I want you to hear what he's saying. And you're telling me you believe that he went to the cross for your sins. Now do me a favor while you're there in your heart, tell him it wasn't good enough. As his blood drips, as he's taking his life, say, Jesus, thanks for doing this, but it's not good enough. Tell him it wasn't good enough. Do that for me. And this guy's just weeping. You know, sometimes our pride will keep us from the grace of Jesus Christ. We want to fight. To do, if, if I forgive, if I accept the forgiveness, then what I'm saying is I made mistakes. I've been fighting to defend my past my whole life. I can't accept forgiveness because that's admitting guilt. Your pride can get in the way of your future. And like Saul on the road to Damascus, he had to say, I'm telling you what, man, there's freedom frown when you can go, I'm forgiven of that. I got to figure out what to do with all of it, but I'm forgiven of that. I got I to gotta make amends. I got to reconcile some things, but I am forgiven of that. This morning, I would ask that you consider just dropping the rope. Put the shame and the pain of your past down and allow God to begin a new work in you. We talk about next steps every single week at this church. We want you to know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. And this week we were in the, in, in the office and I'm writing and, uh, you know, I don't write messages every week. So I'm always just pounding my head against the desk and, you know, just trying to discern what's best. And I told the guys, I said, guys, this is just a salvation message. And they said, well, yeah, that's, that's the first step. That's the first step, but the next steps. Man, I'm telling you what, man, there's freedom for you. There is freedom for you, but it's built on a foundation that Jesus brings through salvation. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this morning we come to you humbled. You know, and it's for years I've been trying to wrap my brain around your grace and I am further than I have ever been from understanding it. 
but Jesus, I receive it. I receive it. I thank you for it. This morning, you may be here, and man, that you just see, you just see a mountain you can't climb. Let's cut some switchbacks. Let's get up there together. Let's get up to the top together. This morning, maybe, maybe for you, the next step is saying, I need, to, I need to let go of my pride. I need to let go of my shame and my guilt, and I need to receive Jesus into my heart. If that's you today, why don't you just say this prayer in, 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 your, in your heart, in your, in your mind with me. Jesus, this morning, I thank you for what you've done on the cross for me. Jesus, this morning, I thank you that while I was, while I was dead in my sin, you have brought me to life in your death by the blood of the lamb. I can come out of my shame, out of my guilt, and I can take steps forward. This morning, Jesus, I receive you into my soul. I don't know what the future looks like, but I know right now something's different with me. Jesus, I receive you. Amen. Amen.